This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is the poet and educator Xochitl Julissa Bermejo. A former Steinbeck Fellow and Poets and Writers California Writers Exchange winner, Xochitl's writing has been featured in the Academy of American Poets Poem A Day on Being's Poetry Unbound and Poetry Unbound 50 Poems to Open Your World. She has received residencies from Hedgebrook, Ragdale, Yefenov, and the National Parks Art Foundation in partnership with the Getty National Military Park and Poetry Foundation. In 2011, she co-founded Women Who Submit, a literary organization that uses social media and community events to empower women and non-binary authors to submit work for publication, with Ashaki Jackson and Alyssa Dixon, and she currently serves as the organization's director. Sochil wrote her debut collection, Posada, Offerings of Witness and Refuge, while living in a house in the shadows of Dodger Stadium at historic Solano Canyon. Today we are discussing her second collection, Incantation, Love Poems for Battle Sites, which explores U.S. monuments, memorializes black and brown bodies murdered by state-sanctioned violence, and shares love poems to family, friend, and dalliances in rituals of resistance and resilience. So, Chiel, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to talk to you about this collection. And I wanted to start by asking you just about the name of this collection, Incantation. What are you trying to evoke? A lot of the things I was thinking about with this collection was how our words can help create a more just future Hmm. and how poetry can kind of reimagine our world and um, what it can look like. And um, so that's where the idea of incantation comes from. It took me a while to come to that word. Um, I was thinking about a lot of different words and thinking about like spells and prayers and um, and they're kind of all similar to me. Like a poem is a prayer, is a spell, is an incantation in mm. my mind. So that's where that came from. I really like that a lot. I noticed that you play with form quite a bit in this collection, both in terms of the the sort of physical space that the poem occupies. There's poems that are sort of oriented in different ways on the page and in the the level of abstraction or or the amount of metaphor and narrative that you're sort of incorporating in. So you have a poem, Torta, that is presented in the shape of a bun, several poems that are written in non-rhyming couplets or tercets or quatrains, poems that are written in full paragraphs, almost like essays, and poems that make liberal and creative use of white space. What role do novelty and play occupy in your creative process? I enjoy finding a poem's form through the revision of it. So typically when I start a poem, it's kind of a block, Hmm. a a block text, Um, or like it's one stanza where all the lines are relatively the same size. And I kind of think of it as a, like a, like a brick of clay Hmm. that I'm then going to play with and move around and think about and like, and so, and then, so through the revision of the poem, thinking about what it's about and what the themes are and the symbols are, the form kind of comes from that. That makes me think of uh, the way that sculptors often talk about the work that they're doing as sort of chi- right, like chipping away at a large block and, and revealing the image underneath. Is that how you sort of think about it? <laughs> Yeah, I I call it sculpting a poem for sure. I think about Mm. it a lot like sculpting. And then even, so sometimes, you know, there are concrete poems in the book, which means that they're poems that have shapes. So like, uh, I'm not your torta looks like a bun because it's supposed to look like a torta, a sandwich. And um, and there's the mermaid game and I was trying to make it look like the tail of a mermaid. Mm. So there's that, right, where it's like the topic, the theme of the poem becomes the shape. But then there's also just like, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, well, let me try three lines. And then so then that's also a way to chisel, chisel away at the poem, because sometimes if you break things up into stanzas and lines, what you'll find is it's easier to find the words that you don't need anymore when you're when you're shaping it that way. So then you start to like, get rid of the excess. Yeah, giving yourself some kind of um like constraint to work within. Yeah. I noticed also that many of the poems in this collection, as in Posada, are written for or after someone, a father and a daughter who drowned at the border, your mother, the poet Chen Chen. What purpose do these dedications serve for you? And how do you conceptualize the conversation between yourself and the people that you're writing to, for, and about? 
the poems in the first section are a lot of like what I would consider the most like social justice type poems. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of memorial poems, like you said, like there's a poem for Brianna Taylor. There's a poem for Andres Guardado, who was a young man shot by the Compton police. Um, so those those dedications at the beginning are important because those poems were written with them in mind to honor them and memorialize them and honor them and um, not just how they died, but also their lives prior to that and who they were and who their mm -hmm. families were. So there's that. And then also in that section, I also have poems from 2020 from the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. So in April 2020, uh, April is National Poetry Month and there's always a poem a day challenge. And so for April 2020, while we were all in lockdowns and separated, I was asking people to send me photos on Instagram of them and their loved ones. And then I wrote and then I posted that poem. I'm sorry, I posted that photo with a love poem that was inspired by the photo to a friend. So then there's also poems like the poem for my mom is a photo is from that series where it's a photo of me and her as when I'm a baby. And there's a photo for my nephew, a poem for my nephew, a poem for a couple of friends. So those dedications are coming specifically from that exercise. And even mm -hmm. though I wrote 30 poems, there's only five in the book. And then the afters, I just always like to share inspiration for a poem. So, you know, Chen Chen, I love his book. Um, I can never remember the name of it because it's a very long name. <laughs> uh, some name, Further Possibilities. Further Possibilities, isn't it? Yes. But um, so I was reading that during the time I was in uh, in 2017, where part of this book is in. And that was an inspiration to me. So I just like to I just like people to know that like, oh, this was inspired by this mm. poem or this book or this movie. It's I, I do a lot of the crastic work, too, which means that there are poems that are inspired by a piece, another piece of art. So then like, there's a poem in there that's after a Frida Kahlo painting. Yes, there's a right. poem that's after a film. Um, so I just like to share that stuff. I wonder how you how you experience it differently and how you might expect readers to, to experience it differently when, for example, right, you said there was this poem a day challenge where people sent you photographs when they are take it when they're put in the book outside of that context versus when you sort of shared them originally. Well, what do I think readers, how readers are taking that opposed to how I first intended it? Yeah, I'm just I'm curious how like how the context that the poem is presented in, whether it's a book or, uh, you know, if it's presented with the photo, I think you said on Instagram, right? How mm -hmm. how you think that changes it? Social media and Instagram is kind of an important element in this book. Mm -hmm. There's a poem all about that says, like, why I will never advise poets to no longer post poems on social media. Mm. And that kind of goes through. A lot of different people who have died uh, because of, you know, the government, government sanctioned violence, the police, things like that, the border. And I just think in uh, in the last few years, social media has become a huge importance and has become a huge vehicle for activism. Um, so I kind of like that there are poems in the book that were first written in in Instagram and that like it was doing something on Instagram mm. and hopefully it was giving some sense of hope and love to people in a very hard time when we couldn't be together. And then now in the book, it's just, it, one, it's kind of like a callback. It's like, yeah. Hey, remember that time? I remember when we had to like communicate through Instagram and do like Instagram lives all the time and stuff like that. <laughs> but then it's also, it also is a nice balance. Those poems specifically end up being a nice balance with some of the harder poems that are about people who have been killed. Yeah. Which was something I was also thinking about. Like, how do I balance the hard stuff with something loving and comforting? And I always wanted to bring that in because we can't just go hard, hard, you know, difficult, scary all the time. Yeah. So I think now's a good time to have you read the first poem you're going to read from Incantation. Um, let's start with For the Love of Home. Sure. And that's from the first section. Like I said, the first section is a lot of social justice poems. I actually started this poem in 2017. Um, and then I just kept trying to write it and trying to write it. And then um, I got an opportunity to 
be part of a video poem with the LA Music Center and Rafa Cardenas, a photographer, he invited mm. me to be part of this video poem with him. And so then I got to finally finish some version of that for then. And that was in the summer of 2020. And the interesting that happened was I wrote it. I was thinking about, I live in San Gabriel. It's my hometown. There is a mission here. So that's a site of colonialism That's yeah. a, that was built by um, enslaved indigenous people, the Tongva people. And so I was thinking about how to dismantle that. You know, it was 2020, right? And there was the uprising and we were all kind of thinking about like, how do we dismantle this yeah. uh, colonialism? And so I sent it off to be in this video. And then like the next day, someone set fire to the roof. Oh, wow. So, of the church, yeah. which is my family's church. Like I grew up there oh, and my mother is still a, a regular parishioner of this church. So I immediately then asked for it back because I was horrified that like, I didn't want to hurt anyone. And mm -hmm. I kind of felt like responsible for this fire. And so I wrote, rewrote it for the video and then I rewrote it again for the book. So that's all kind of in here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. Yeah. It's, and it's four parts. And the fourth part is an imagining. So that encanting. So it's imagining what this space would look like in 2033. So in mm. 10 years, if we were to take down the bell tower of this mission, what would we do with those pieces? So that's what's imagining. This is for the love of home, San Gabriel, July 2020. One, may this poem honor the Tongva people. May morning steps with mom reclaim the corner of live oak and a street named for a conqueror I refuse space to, with Bougainvillea's resolve to topple a wooden wall. May these lines relieve Toyperina of her post. Two, when alarms announce curfews and police attempt to stomp the people's demands, dad advises mission glass at Cesar Chavez for replacing a cracked windshield. But nothing delivers a black father safely home to his daughter. San Gabriel Mission's thatched roof catches fire at 4 a.m. testing structure, but nothing suffices. When a priest stamps ash to forehead, he says, remember, you are dust. Three, fire is renewal. Land cannot forget. Land is mother. Mother's womb is structure. Ash is not nothing. Futures are sketched in ash. Four. When the bells finally came down, their tongues were fat from centuries of wagging. Being lashed to ropes and forced to cry was not the life they dreamed when first molded, but now they sing as 262 copper hearts, one for every year the mission stood. The indigenous women's monument, forged by native craftspeople, sanctified art installation, is dedicated in the year 2033 by the people of the city of St. Gabriel as a place for healing, reads the sign in five languages. Not far off, a concrete pedestal remains from a vote to discard the statue. Girls from the high school, volunteers baptized green skirts, hauled the bronze to South Elmani and dumped it into the river marshes. Army of engineers ordered, let it drown. And the blue herons keep guard. Come, sit in this circle, listen to the women, be touched by medicine. Thank you for reading that. You'll probably figure out that I, I get very interested in titles and you titled this poem for the love of home. What does home mean to you, both generally and in this context? In my first book was a lot about home and like searching for home and like the immigrant's journey to find a home and my family's history of finding our home in L.A. But then also like me as a single woman in L.A. just trying to find her own family, her own love, her own home. So like home is a, a state of mind, right? It's a place of comfort. Typically, I think about home as being like the people you feel most comfortable with, the people who feel like a home that you can be yourself with and be your most authentic self. So that's one thing. In this poem, For the Love of Home, it's also that, you know, I'm talking about my hometown and I'm talking about walking around my hometown and I'm talking about a site that lives in my hometown that not only is in my hometown, but I've actually had a lot of, I mean, I went to grade school there. Mm. I was baptized there. I had my quinceanera there. I've been to many funerals there. So then it's also like about that and kind of trying to figure out, trying to 
like rectify or or somehow have a conversation with that like I I feel a state of comfort and I have this love for where I'm from and who I'm from and at the same time there is something very like dark within Mm. that that I'm trying to struggle with and rectify in some way you know like how do you love something that's also flawed yeah yeah and I mean as you mentioned right like this poem is sort of imagining a sort of piece of a decolonization in a way and I'm curious how you how you think about sort of your role as a poet and as an artist in those sort of processes of decolonization um, I think of myself, I feel like poetry is a vocation, and I feel that poets ha- are, have very powerful skills that we are able to take our thoughts and our feelings and our imaginings and put those to words and put those words to paper and like that those things have echoes and that like they can touch many people. Um, so yeah, I just think that it's, again, it's like part of my calling mm-hmm. to do that work to think about that. And also going back to your question of like, what is home? You know, that imagining of 10 years into the future, after that fire, after that real fire happened in 2020, burned down the church, it's like, okay, it's not just enough to dismantle something. Like, what are we gonna do with it? And like, what I would love would be to have a space that is about healing, that is about community, that is about everyone being heard and is about, you know, pains having a place for pain to go and be heard and seen you know I I really like that um just sort of emphasis on it's not enough to just tear something down there has to be some conception of what might come after yeah join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections hosted by Seth Shapiro Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune into Intersections Sunday evening at 6 here on K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is poet and educator Sochil Julissa Bermejo. Her new collection, Incantation, Love Poems for Battle Sites, was inspired by an artist residency she did at the Gettysburg National Military Park in the fall of 2017. You mentioned that your first collection, Posada, included many poems about your family. And Incantation has several, like this one, that that are maybe not about your family in particular, but that involve your family, that bring them into the stories that you're telling. What makes family such a compelling subject for you? And what are you what are you trying to explore or understand about the members of your family and about yourself through talking about them in poetry? I think, again, the complexity of them. Like, my family is a very important part of my life. My parents you know, we're both um, immigrant children, immigrants. They both came as children. My father is a teenager, actually, my mother as an infant. And their history is, was a big influence on me and like how what I became, you know, my passions. And also they themselves have always been big activists, big organizers and members of a community. They've always found community very important. So those things I got from them and I always want to honor that. And then I don't have children, but I have two nieces and two nephews. Mm. And I also find it very important. Like I am very proud to be a Thea mm-hmm. and I take that role very seriously as well. And that like, I want to give my nibblings something of substance and also like, but it's a, they're complex relationships, right? Like my my mother's relationship is a complex relationship. And um, my, my nephew, so there's a poem in here, like even in war, where I'm trying to talk to my nephew because he, he loves video games. And I would always hate that he was playing like these games with guns and like, I'm trying to talk to him, but then it's like, well, what's really important here? Like maybe what's really important is that I just actually spend time with him and be curious about what he's interested in, you know? 
So it's not as simple as like, put that down, you know, like, yeah, don't yeah. do like it's, it's it. They're, they're complex relationships. Yeah. And so it's like trying to figure out how to be, have these values and mm. how to share these values, but then also honor everyone's complexities. I think that's something that, you know, we all deal with on, on some level or another, right? Like that, the difficulty of what does it mean to, what does it mean to live your values, but to communicate your values and to act on them when you're encountering people you love who may not fully share them? Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the themes of the book is that, like, you just got to keep trying. I, mm-hmm. Again, is a word that's said a lot in the book. And and I think that's, like, one of the central ideas is that, like, just try, try to say the thing. Mm-hmm. And when you get it wrong, because we will just try again and, and, you know, and, and be authentic in that search. Yeah. Well, I think we'll switch to the, the next poem that I've asked you to read, which comes from part two of this collection. It is titled Comfort Food for White Spaces, but uh, maybe you can speak a little bit to, it's one of multiple poems by that name or multiple uh, fragments, at least by that name that appears in this collection. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I believe there's five pieces and they're basically like um, micro personal essays Mm -hmm. and they're five pieces and they kind of weave through the middle section, which is about this time that I spent three weeks at Gettysburg National Military Park as the poet in residence there. And that was in the fall of 2017. So that was, you know, early in Trump's administration. That was also like right after the Charlottesville right. uh, markets and protests and the and the murder of Heather Hare by a white supremacist. So that happened in August. And then I came here in September. And so the middle section is all about being on the Civil War site with 1100 monuments. It's like a brown woman in this very white space and so Mm -hmm. comfort food for white spaces is the like these micro essays about that um experience and always coming back to like food and it's typically like weird food or like manufactured food so there's this one i'm about to read has like egos Mm -hmm. and another one has like budig uh sandwich meat which is like this weird gray sandwich meat (laughs) um things like that so this is the first one Comfort food for white spaces. It's my first Saturday in Gettysburg and down the lane at Eisenhower's homestead is the annual World War II Days living history encampment. Kate, a friend, drove me here from Virginia and is staying the night. Into pinup fashion, she marvels at 1940s collectibles and talks about an Italian grandfather who piloted in the war. I, mar- I mark every white man I pass and think about Navajo code talkers and Mexican foot soldiers. I find one ally, a man in a Tuskegee Airman uniform. He smiles wide and offers a tour of his tent. I want to ask him questions, but don't. That night, Kate and I attended the USO dance. She's a bombshell in a jungle print strapless dress with a sweetheart neckline. I'm Rosie the Riveter in denim overalls and a polka dot headscarf. Kate dances with a handsome salt and pepper soldier in uniform. On the third song, she insists he dance with me. Playing the friend, I dutifully allow him to spin me out and reel me in. As we move, he confides he's married and a father. After another spin, I learn of his 30-year-old daughter and eight-year-old grandson. I look him in the face seeking his age, and then as he walks off the dance floor, a slight limp. Why do people want to remember war like this? I ask Kate as we leave the dance. You think we shouldn't, she seethes. Are you saying Hitler shouldn't be hated? That's not what I'm saying. Still early, I yelp the closest bar and navigate us to an Irish pub. You want to go in there? Kate points to the brick facade and gas lamps. You'll ask more questions and get your ass kicked. Back at Klingle Farm, I text Andy in California and tell him I miss how he lets me think out loud. In the morning, before Kate starts her three-hour drive home, we toast yellow ego waffles into the shape of frisbees and release hurt into the air. Once alone, I launch myself into a search for the Tuskegee Airmen, or a place for questions. 
since you brought it up, I want to ask you first about the the significance of the foods themselves that you chose, of these sort of weird foods like Eggo waffles and this kind of gray meat that you chose later on. So there's a there's a mention of a guy. So like a love interest also leaves into this section. He ends up dumping me. And that night he dumped me, I made myself uh, SpaghettiOs. Mm. And I find SpaghettiOs very comforting. So um, it started with the SpaghettiOs. And then like, I've always kind of been curious, like, why do I like SpaghettiOs so much? They're such a weird soupy, syrupy Mm. thing. (laughs) Um, So it started with that. And then I was just thinking about all the different um, kind of those kinds of foods that I was eating while out there. And so there's also like a soft serve sundae, the Eggo waffles, the buttig. But then the final piece, I would start thinking about my home and going returning home. And then I think about like the Mexican food that like my father cooks for me. And so then it becomes, then it comes back to like, it's like a coming home, basically. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned that you wrote this poem along with many others that are from this sort of second part of incantation as part of your residency at the Getty National Military Park. What can you tell us about that experience and why were you drawn to this particular residency in the first place? As the director of Women Who Submit, Women Who Submit used to have these um, gatherings before COVID and hopefully we'll return to them one day. We used to have gatherings in each other's homes and we would bring um, journals and we bring open calls and information and we bring food and we just share all this stuff, all the food and the journals and the resources and the encouragement. And so it was at one of those meetings that someone said, hey, did you see there you could like be a poet at a national park? And they were promoting it as like a poet in the park. And mm. that's actually on my bucket list. Like I will, I'll hopefully one day be a poet in residence at like Yosemite or something like that. Yeah. But that's what I was imagining. I was imagining Yosemite. So when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, I'll apply for that. Like I want to be a poet in the park. And so I just applied not thinking that much about huh. what Gettysburg meant because personally I'd only been there once in my life and it was on like a road trip and I stopped off and it was the middle winter. So the, the grounds were covered in snow and I stopped at the museum for like a very short while. And all I really knew about Gettysburg or my knowledge of Gettysburg was the Gettysburg address yeah, by Lincoln, yeah. which is what I used in my application that I was like, oh, you know, about unifying and like thinking about, you know, where our country is and how we could have, you know, how we can change things and things like that. So that's all I thought. Um, I just wanted to work at a national park. Or I just wanted to ride in a national park. Then I got it. And then... I think I got I think I got the news that I got in in like July and then watching the news all of August. I was like, what Mm -hmm. the hell am I doing? (laughs) And then getting there, it was even more of it was just such a culture shock because I'm Chicana, Mexican-American from L.A. And except for like a few years in college where I lived in San Francisco, I've never lived anywhere. I've definitely never lived out of California. So it was a huge culture shock. We don't have the same relationship here to like, you know, the Civil War and also the the war of independence. We don't yeah. have those relationships here that people do over there. Um, so that was just really weird. And then like all the weird reenactors, like not just the civil war in the poem I just read, you know, Eisenhower's home is on the same land. Mm-hmm. And so the day I got there, there was a huge world war two reenactment encampment that like went the whole weekend. So I just was very confused by all this. I was like, I don't understand. Like, what does this all mean? And why would you glorify war like this? And like, what's the point of it? So it was just weird. And then on top of that, you know, there was a lot of things to be afraid of. I was living in this 1860s farmhouse. There was um, two soldiers died in the basement. So I was scared of ghosts. Mm -hmm. I was also walking around a place that had like 10,000 people died over three days. So there was a lot of fear of, dealing with ghosts and thinking about this hallowed land. Then there was also a lot of fear around, you know, that I'm on a civil war site and there's all this stuff happening around this subject. And I was scared of, you know, encountering white supremacists. I mean, I would see Confederate flags all the time. I would see KKK books like in all the shops. Like this was like a normal, this is a normal part of being around there. And I was just like, what am I doing here? It was just very, scary. And I kept asking myself, what am I doing here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It seems like these are, uh, a lot of these poems are an attempt to process that, which must have been very difficult. 
Yeah. And I, in the end, it was very fruitful because I think like, I didn't think too much about it before I got there, but that's also how I process anyway. I only process, I process through going through something and walking in a place and being there. So it just allowed me to write a lot and think about these things and think about my connection to the conversations that were already happening in the country and like what my place was in all that. And uh, yeah, so it was a very fruitful experience as weird as it was and scary as it was. You mentioned a sort of anxiety around experiences with ghosts in this place where so many people had died. And there is at least one poem in, in this section that I think it's called a ghost interview, something like that. Yeah. I'm curious what your experiences were like when you were when you were there and, and what sort of connections you felt to the people who were dead and possibly their ghosts. For the first few days, I was really scared and um, I never turned out the lights. I would leave Netflix on all the time, especially when I was like going to go to bed. I would leave like my computer on next to me because I just didn't want to experience anything or question anything or think I heard something. So I just made it like really impossible to like encounter anything. Um, But I was also like really afraid the entire time. And, you know, I barely slept. I was right. I was waking up with the dawn you know, these are in the poems. I would wake up with the dawn and like run outside and just like take a deep breath because it's like, oh, another day's here. Um, so the peach uh, ghost interview with a soldier in the peach orchard was uh, a real thing I did. I then one day I was like, OK, I can't keep living like this. This is really hard. Um, so I went out to that's a site in Gettysburg of site of one of the battles battles Mm -hmm. and so I went out to the peach orchard and I took I had a crystal and I took the crystal with me and I went out at sunset and I just sat in the field and just asked the ghosts a bunch of questions and kind of waited for replies and had that conversation and it was really wild because I don't know if I've ever had that kind of transformative experience Mm -hmm. before because after that I just felt like I had permission to be there and everything kind of eased up and I was able to like turn out the lights and I was able to like be calm in that space and I was able to write. So I think it was important for me to like face that fear because I felt like, yeah, like I had permission after that. Like there was a mutual respect. Yeah. And there's something there that I think like it, it resonates also with our conversations with living people, right. To part of what can make you be welcome in a space and make you, and make you trusted in a space is your ability to listen and ask questions and be sort of inquisitive about people, whether they're living or dead. Yeah. Join KSQD every Monday evening for the award-winning program Peace Talks Radio. News of war, conflict, and political divisiveness fill our media. The Peace Talks Radio series helps counterbalance that with talk about making peace in our daily lives and information on topics that relate to a more peaceful world, locally, nationally, and globally. Peace Talks Radio airs Monday at 6 p.m. here at K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is poet and educator Xochitl Julissa Bermejo. Her new collection, Incantation, Love Poems for Battle Sites, was inspired by an artist residency she did at the Gettysburg National Military Park in the fall of 2017. I'm interested, going back to this particular poem, one thing that I really resonated with me about it is the way that you talk about memory. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the Alan Bennett play that then became a movie, um, The History Boys, but there's a line in it about how all these monuments and these ways that these things that we can sort of construct to officially remember war are not so much about a fear of forgetting as they are about a fear of remembering them properly. Mm -hmm. That really resonated with me in what you were talking about and in the sort of way that you talked about in the way that that conversation with Kate plays out in this poem and especially in her, um, I guess, projection of what you mean by asking, why do people remember things this way? Can you share a little bit more about about that set of experiences and sort of how you came to understand the role of these monuments in the sort of shaping of memory and what they're doing for sort of collective consciousness? 
One thought is, so Peach Orchard comes up in a couple of poems, probably mm. like three or four poems. And that one of the reasons that is, is because the, what's one of the things that's strange to me about this space, this park, is that it's kept the same as if it's still 1862. And that includes thing natural elements like the peach mm. orchard, like these peach trees are supposed to like die and decompose, right? The peaches are supposed to fall and go to seed. The trees are not supposed to be living this long. So, but they keep replanting them so that mm. it's like always state, this this frozen state. And um, that felt really unnatural to me. And I feel like that's also what's happening with these monuments. And I feel like one of the things I feel sad about that space is that that's what's happening to the soldiers. Yeah. Like you look at the monuments and a lot of them, a lot of them are of soldiers, like soldiers holding their guns up and soldiers like, you know, aiming for a shot or a soldier dead, you know, laying like dead. And it's like, they're never allowed to just naturally like become earth you know it's yeah. like that's not what's supposed to happen to somebody they're just supposed to be able to like be rest in peace right yeah. and they're not allowed to rest in peace and so that was one of the things that I came to from being there is like this unnatural state of stasis is not allowing for these ghosts to rest another thing just reading that piece today it's also reminding me of like what we're looking at right now with the mm -hmm. ceasefire and how people are talking about Israel and Palestine. And like, you know, just by questioning something, like all of a sudden it's like, you must be against it or you must, you must be on the wrong side. And it's like, no, I, I think I should be allowed to question things. You know, I was listening to this, um, to one of the podcasts that comes out from Jewish currents. Um, I think it was a conversation with Naomi Klein and one of the things that they were talking about in that was the way that the Holocaust is presented, and especially presented to people who are Jewish, like myself, it's not done in a way that is designed to, to help you integrate those experiences. It is so frequently done as just a sort of constant exposure and re-exposure to the most traumatic elements of it. I was thinking about that a little bit as you were talking, and about like what might be the purpose of what might be the purpose of that and it's it seems very similar right like it's a way of not letting these ghosts rest not letting not letting us recover from the trauma of war yeah it's all, yeah I, I agree with that but it's not also letting us recover yeah recover and let things change things yeah. should be allowed to evolve <laughs> Well, and even even those, like you said, those sort of statues of soldiers, right? There's a dimensionality to human beings, even human beings who are soldiers and participate in war. But the way they're going to be remembered forever is only as the soldier with the gun in their hand. Yeah. And that to me is 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 sad. And that's in a different poem. But that's kind of one of the main things I came to that they should be allowed to rest. They should be allowed to put their guns down mm. and not be a soldier, you know. Yeah. So let's turn to part three now. And the poem that we selected from this part is called Ritual of Wholeness. Just as before, can you can you set it up for us a little? Tell us about what we're going to hear. Sure. So this is the final poem in the book. And I was, it's a memory of my grandmother. So my grandmother is, in the, on the cover, she's actually, there's a photo of, her holding me as a baby on the cover and mm. she's always in all of my poetry. Um, so there's a couple of poems of her in here. So this is a, this is a memory with her. And yeah, I used to, she had a home in Boyle Heights and I would go and visit. And the first, she was always cooked dinner for me. And the first thing I would do was just like go straight to her backyard to pick a Meyer lemon um, because I was going to squeeze that on whatever she gave me. It didn't matter. I was never <laughs> going to be a lemon pleased on to that food. So that's that's the memory. I always love sharing my grandmother with people because she's my place of comfort. So it's kind of like mm. an offering to others. This is Ritual of Wholeness. Yellow lemons grew ripe behind her house. And when I was younger, but not no longer little, I would speed past her working in the kitchen, barely a hello, out the back door to select a single bright mire. Grandma stayed silent as I carried the fruit in, laid it at the counter, bared the knife, sliced it through the belly. Not until we were seated at the table 
she watching from across the way as I squeezed and spilled juice over a bowl of tender frijoles swimming in caldo, not until I devoured two healthy helpings did she say with a wink, ¿Por qué no comes? ¿No tienes hambre? As if to say, want could never be shameful. I really love that that last line, and I think this is such a loving poem in general, and it, it paints such a vivid portrait of your grandmother. What can you tell us about your relationship with her? She's just, um, she's a very loving person. Yeah, in our family, we have a very big Mexican family. I have like, I'm one of 19 of her grandchildren. Mm. Uh, she had seven children who lived past, you know, she had a couple of children who died like in infancy or, or tod- at toddlers, um, but she had seven children who grew to be adults. And we're there, all my aunts and uncles are still alive and all my cousins are still alive. And a lot of us, I think, like think that it was because of her because she's a very devout Catholic and she was a very devout woman. And so we kind of see her as like our like angel, Hmm. you know, and she was, she was a very kind person and she was a very like, it was funny. She wasn't very, um, she actually wasn't very like physically affectionate. Like Mm -hmm. she never hugged, even though the photo in on the cover is actually her holding me, but she wasn't a big hugger. She wasn't a, you know, she wasn't going to be the person to give you a bunch of like kisses. She wasn't that grandma. She wasn't very touchy. Um, but she was always the way she showed her love was by feeding us. (laughs) And then, you know, everyone was always welcome and everyone, there was never any judgment. She just was happy to see you at her table and eating. So, (laughs) um, and that's all she wanted from us really was just to be happy and growing and healthy. And I remember one time I must, I must've been in like my mid twenties. She died, she passed away. I think I was in my early, like she passed away 10 years ago. So I was Mm. 33. So I was somewhere in my 20s and I said, like, I'm so sorry, grandma, I'm not married with children. And she was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, Are you happy? Are you happy <laughs> you know, with your life? I was like, yes. And I was like, that's all I care about. She sounds like a really lovely person. Um, and I think very comforting. And, and that concept of comfort comes up in this collection in, in a multitude of ways. It also, that's a word that appears in your in your bio in the collection as well. It says, inspired by her Chicana identity, Sochil works to cultivate love and comfort in chaotic times. So what does comfort mean to you and how is that reflected in a poem like this one? You know, you were asked earlier about what home means to me. Mm. And one of the things I think about is being with my grandmother. She actually didn't speak any English, like any, even though she moved here in like the mid fifties, um, she didn't speak any English and I, my Spanish is horrible. So, um, it's just one of those people that like, I would go to her house and she would like have me lay on the couch while she like watched TV and I'd just fall asleep and she'd give me a pillow. And like, we would just be in that room together. Like she would be on one couch, I'd be in the other. And it was just, I didn't, there was no expectations, right? Like I could just be, and I had no worry, no expectations. And that was such, so important for me. And so in my poetry, that's what I hope to offer people is just some of that comfort Mm. of like no expectations, a moment of breath, a moment of ease, um, because we need that, especially like the world is so crazy. Yeah. So those moments. You also, you mentioned that this is the last poem in Incantation. Can I ask why this is the poem that you chose to end with? I wanted to end on something positive. And I wanted, again, like my grandmother is always so important. So I always just like to end on an offering of her, a memory of her seemed good. And then going back to that thing of like, it's okay to try again. Like for me, when it's like, it's okay to want, the last line is as if to say you could want could never be shameful. So when my grandmother said, what the joke is that my grandmother would like feed me like a ton. <laughs> I would at least have seconds, maybe thirds. And I'm eating all this food in front of her. And she's saying, Oh, are, you're not hungry. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Do you not feel well? Are you not hungry? You know? And it's like, no, eat more, eat more. And it was like, And like, it's okay to want more. It's okay to like give more 
and to try more. So that was, that was what I just liked that thought to end on that. It's like, it's okay. You know, let's all try more. It's okay to want a different world. It's okay to try for a different world. Are you concerned about the Earth's future? Are you interested in what is being done in the Monterey Bay area to address environmental issues? Then tune into Sustainability Now with hosts Ronnie Lipschitz and Brooke Wright. Every other Sunday at 5 p.m. on KSQD, they interview area scientists, scholars, activists, and officials involved in pursuing sustainability. That's Sunday at 5 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM, your ink spot on the dial, or listen online at ksqd.org. If you're just joining me, my guest today is poet and educator Sochil Julissa Bermejo. Her new collection, Incantation, Love Poems for Battle Sites, was inspired by an artist residency she did at the Gettysburg National Military Park in the fall of 2017. Uh, before we move to, to the last poem, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the construction of this collection as a whole. Because it is, as you mentioned, it's in three parts. You said the first part is this part that is more sort of social justice engaged. The second part is this part that deals with your time at the Gettysburg Park. What do you see this third part as? The subtitle of the book is Love Poems for Battle Sites. Mm -hmm. And they're all kinds of different love poems, right? Like, I feel like I have love poems to people who have died um, because of like from the police and then I have love poems for family and then in the end it's like the more romantic love poems and the erotic poems and also the self-love poems and going into writing this book I told myself I was going to honor that part of myself and that it was still very hard the whole time because it's like it's vulnerable. And then also it's like, well, who's going to care about this? <laughs> like I was just talking about ghosts. Now mm. you don't care about this, <laughs> like, you know, and that's how it felt putting it at the end. Even though like that was one of my goals was to honor that part of myself and write that. I, you know, I was reading just uh, all about love by bell hooks. And she says in the beginning and like the intro, like men have been able to write about love all the time and nobody tells them anything doesn't tell them they're frivolous, you know, so women should be writing about love just as often because we're, we also, we know just as much or more about love. So um, that kind of gave me permission to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write love poems. And so that was what that was about. And then also just honoring that part of ourselves, myself, and that like, I can't do the uh, social justice stuff and put myself in these places without also honoring my other sides and my my need for joy and pleasure and sensuality and connection hmm. and that they go together yeah I like that a lot I'm curious too how you think in general and in this collection in particular about the sort of choosing or narrowing down of the poems that you include so I did it. I I created a chapbook of the Gettysburg poems, which was called like Locating the Dead. So that section was actually pretty solid. And then I was like, okay, but this doesn't make a whole book. <laughs> so now I have to think about what else I want to put in here. And that was actually a very long process because one, I didn't, because the Gettysburg stuff was so strong, I needed to figure out how to elevate the other parts of the book to be as strong as that. Hmm. So that was one issue. And then it's like, well, what do I put in there? And, you know, I had 30 poems from that poem of day, poem of day challenge in April, 2020. Do I use all of them? Which ones do I like? Which ones do I think are strongest? And like, I went from having like 15 to then 10 to now five. Like I just kept calling them because it was like, well, which ones are the strongest? Which ones are the strongest? And I really wanted to also, I didn't want the book to be too long. So that was a concern of mine. So I was just always cutting stuff. And I was also thinking about like, well, what's a poem? Has this thing already been said somewhere else? And has it been said better? Was like a question I was asking myself, like, which one says it better? Which one says it better? Okay, then I'll get rid of the weaker one. I revised this multiple times. I don't even know how many times, even after it got a publisher, even with the publisher, I still revised, had full revisions twice, I believe, because I was like, no, it's not strong enough yet. And I still wanted to move things around. So like they accepted it. And then before I gave it over, I had a couple months. So then I was, I did a full revision then. 
And then I got edits from my publisher. And then I did another full revision then and just like cutting, cutting, cutting. And also, again, just making sure that it was elevated to the Gettysburg experience. Do you find that it's hard for you to let go of a collection and sort of allow it to be frozen? Yes. I mean, it's a scary, (laughs) it's scary to let something go um, because, you know, you want it to be the best it can be. So that's scary. But at some point, you know, you just have to. I know my publisher would probably say, yes, she has a hard time letting go. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you just have to at some point. And it's like, all right, well, this is the best this book's going to be. And then I guess I'll, whatever issues I have with it, I'll bring it into the next book, you know? Yeah. So when I was thinking about the poems that I wanted you to read, I wanted to make sure that we got at least one from each part to sort of give a glimpse of of the of what the collection looks like sewn together. But there was a second poem from part two that I, I couldn't let go of, even though it didn't quite fit with everything that I wanted to ask you. And that's Harvest Moon Sestina for 2017. I thought it might be nice to have you read it here to close us out. Would you do us the honor? Sure. And thank you for having me. This has been great. <laughs> so this is the last poem. Harvest Moon Sestina for 2017. My father cleaned the nopales of needles. It's too hard, he said, his fingers full of cuts. Tonight I'm alone in a farmhouse in fall, but this happened in spring among blossoms and birthdays. This is how he says, love, I wanna see you smile. All day the cacophony of news from the chump that bum, his cacophony of lies and hate creates a feeling in me like a needle scratching across vinyl. Each morning I rise full of omens, esophagus gagging on the sun. The fall is coming. I soothe soothe an acid belly with pink blossoms, red wine, and strange men. I call each one love and insist on being spooned. One I tried to love so hard, I happily worshipped his cacophony of shortcomings. I wanted to make a bent needle point north. I wanted to know two people full of sharp corners could fit flush, but he refused to fall into the arms I held open for him like a blossom. If I were vindictive, I would curse gin blossoms upon his giant drunk nose, but I am too lovely. That's a lie. I'm too scared. A cacophony of fears rattle in my head like ghosts. They needle me in my sleep, manifesting in nightmares full of me screaming in people's faces. Eyes fall disgusted on a target before the tongue drops. Fallout is the waking realization ugliness blossoms in me. Fear can birth monsters, but I will love this self despite myself. I will quiet the cacophony by turning the dial, pushing the needle slightly to the left. Slowly, I will become so full of joy, I won't remember how it is to have a belly full of doubts drowning in cheap Cabernet. I will fall in love with me. I will nurse my heart until it blossoms into a blood dahlia. Each petal will say she loves me. I will pull petal after petal to hear their cacophony and hope one day to feel it like medicine from a needle. Nopal needles scratch the skin, leaving hands full of marks more beautiful than blossoms. Pennsylvania fall is a cacophony in yellow. I whisper, hold on, love. Sochil Julissa Bermejo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. To learn more about Sochil or her writing, visit her website at sochiljulisa.wordpress.com. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced and edited for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our mixing engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.